Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. The unpassing has been described as stunning, poetic, and lucid. Jia Jia Lin is a graduate of Harvard College and the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Her stories have appeared in the Paris Review and other journals. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, and The Unpassing is her first novel. Jamel Brinkley is the author of A Lucky Man, Stories, a finalist for the National Book Award in Fiction, and winner of the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. His writing has appeared in the Best American Short Stories 2018, among other places. He is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and is currently a Wallace Stegner Fellow in Fiction at Stanford. We're delighted to have both Jia Jia Lin and Jamel Brinkley with us this evening. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome. Um, can you hear me okay? Uh, thank you to Skylight for having me. And thank you also to Jamal, who's such a good friend. He flew down to LA to have this conversation with me, <laughs> in w for which I'll owe him forever. Um, I love that there are three babies in the back. <laughs> um, it might make for an interesting soundtrack, but I love it. Like, let them cry. It's fine. Um, one of them is my own. <laughs> so if you're like, why is there a baby screaming mama in the back? That's, that's my child. Um, so I'm going to read, I guess, from the first chapter. And I'm going to jump around a little bit. Um, <laughs> And I'll just start, and then I'll maybe give a little bit of context after I do the next jump. Is this okay? Okay. During an uneventful part of my childhood, my mother walked into the room with a plate of loose, washed grapes. She collapsed. Grapes thudded dully on the carpet. One rolled under the couch. The plate lay overturned, and my mother's body was beside it, limbs splayed. My sister, Pepe, and I remained very still. Don't cry, she whispered to me. But she was the one who was starting to cry. Her bottom lip hung open, and her halting breath slid out. Sunlight glossed the spread of my mother's hair. I saw veins of red in all that black. I felt a compression of everything I knew to one hard nut. Things ended. You couldn't stop things from ending. My mother's back twitched. Her limbs reordered themselves. She sat up. I was testing you, she said. She was angry. She clawed at the grapes on the carpet, collecting them to be washed again. Why were you just sitting there? Why didn't you call for the ambulance? Neither Pepe nor I could say a word. You didn't do anything. As my mother rose from the floor on a swell of indignation, the plate she held tipped forward and back, and grapes rolled right up to the precipice. What kind of children have I raised? Tell me, do you want to be orphans? I wish I'd never felt it, that relief, that total unburdening. 
My mother had wanted to teach us a lesson. What I had learned was reversal. Things that had been splintered could be intact again. Not long after, when we faced events that caused us sorrow, I yearned for that same erasure. Undo this. But although we tried each in our own way, no one was able to go back even one step. Um, okay, so I'm going to jump uh, forward to another scene. And I think I need to tell you the family um, is a mother and a father. And the oldest sister, her name is Pepe. And then the narrator is a 10-year-old boy. And he has a younger brother, Natty, and the youngest sister, Ruby. So it's a, it's a large family. And Ruby is four years old. And one day after school, um, Gavin starts to feel sick and becomes more and more disoriented and then um, wakes up and, and we realize that he's waking up from um, a very severe illness, which later turns out to be meningitis, and um, that his little sister had it too. And this takes place in 1986, um, the year of the Challenger explosion as well. Pepe was the only one home when I woke. How are you feeling, she asked. From my bed, I could see Pepe lying on her stomach, kicking her legs. My pillow obstructed part of my view. Her bare feet swung in and out of my sight. What time is it? I asked. One or two, she said. She was still in her sleeping clothes, a set of faded blue long johns with sleeves that were too short. The elastic at the wrists was loose. Her long black hair was tied back and the shorter front pieces were matted to her temples. When my, I swung my legs out from under the covers, I was wearing pants I had never seen before. It's Tuesday, she added. You went to the hospital. You're not in school, I asked. She didn't respond. Her legs peddled the gummy air. We have to go, I said. They're showing the launch. Did we miss it already? She nodded. Yeah, it was last week. Last week, I said. It exploded, she said. What? Everyone died, she said. She sat up and stared at me, evaluating something in my face. What are you talking about? There was a huge cloud of smoke, she said, and then nothing came out of it, no shuttle. I shook my head, trying to find room for what she was saying. There's something else, she said. She pushed at a spot on the bridge of her nose. Her face was completely bare and her hair was clawed back. Behind her thick glasses, her lashes were sparse and her eyes were very small and black. Suddenly, I was afraid to look at her face. I tried to smooth the folds in the fitted sheet. It was not my usual one and the fabric was all twisted and bunched. Later, I would discover it was too big for my bed. When I helped my mother change it, we had to shove handfuls of it under the mattress, hiding its excess. Ruby's dead, my sister said. I laughed. I pressed on a wrinkle in the sheet with the heel of my palm, trying to spread it flat. Pepe took off her glasses and shook them as though they were filled with dust. You heard me, she said and I don't want to say it again. Stop joking, I said. 
I'm not joking, she said. It happened two days ago. How? I asked. As I said it, I pressed a hand to my throat to stop a noise. There was an expanse between what I was saying and what I understood myself to be saying, and the giggle in my chest was trying to morph into something else. She got sick, Pepe said. There was an outbreak at school. But she doesn't even go to school yet, I said. No, Pepe said, she doesn't. We stared at each other. Without her glasses on, Pepe's eyes had expanded. They were not quite black, but the color of winter soil after the snow was scraped away. Pepe came to my bed. It's no one's fault, she said. Get away, I said. She slipped her glasses back on and stood up. She walked to Ruby's bed, leaned over it, and pulled the blinds up. Light washed over the room. The carpet turned from tan to blonde, and the walls glowed. We're having a warm spell, she said. The faded floral blooms on Ruby's sheets were almost translucent as they bore the brunt of all that sun. I gazed at Ruby's bed. It was neat. Her pillow was missing, though, and that one small absence made me uneasy. After Pepe left, I made my way to the window. I sat there trying to adjust my eyes to the light. Outside, at the end of our dirt driveway, were four trash bags, each opaque black and straining with contents I couldn't fathom. Soon I would find myself searching for things around the house, my backpack, my coat, my shoes, my mug, which I had chipped against Natty's mug, in a test to see whose was stronger. It began to seem that everything I had ever touched was missing or at least the things most familiar to me were gone. Okay, I'm gonna skip just a little bit more um, and I'll read to the end of the first chapter and this is just later that night, the children are getting ready to go to sleep and they all sleep in the same room. In the kids' room, my mother took my hands. She swung them as though to begin dancing, but it was not a dancing expression she wore. My arms began to hurt. I was afraid she would pull them off. How are you feeling, she asked. Fine, I said. Is there some part of you that is hurting, she asked. Not really, I said. What part? Is it your head? Do you need medicine? Pepe was already asleep or pretending to sleep, though it was only eight or nine. I went to lie down too. Are you cold, my mother asked. I pulled these from the basement for you. She patted the stack of extra blankets at the foot of my bed. Did you get these from the basement too? I gestured at the strange sheets I was lying on and the comforter she was trying to pull up to my eyes. They smelled earthy, a kind of settled damp. I kicked the whole stack of blankets to the floor. What hurts, she asked. Please tell me what hurts. There's something heavy, I said. What do you mean, she asked, where? But the weight on me made it hard to speak. From his bed, Natty said, when is Ruby coming home? My mother's eyes stretched to fill her sockets. Ruby is still lost, she said. She can't find her way home. 
still? Natty asked. We don't know where she is, so we can't get her back, you see, because we don't know where to look. My mother drifted to Natty's bed and squatted down to his height. You're the smallest one now. Sometimes it's nice to be the smallest. Where can we find her? Natty asked. I don't know, my mother said. I don't know where. That's what lost means. But where is she lost? I said I don't know. Where? Natty asked. My mother stood up. I told you I can't do anything. You don't think I'd find her if I could? Why are you doing her laundry? Natty asked. I scanned the bedroom. Ruby's bed was now mis missing its sheets as well as its pillow. After my mother left, Natty came to the edge of my bed and said, do you know where Ruby's lost? I don't know anything, I said, and it was utterly true. I scratched at the wall. Where is she lost, he asked. Each time he asked, it was like the fireweed turned to seed in autumn, sending so much fluff into the air we were choking on it. I squeezed my eyes shut as he said, please tell me, where, please. He sent his cottony seeds up and they drifted around, trapped in the room with us. We lay in the dark, shifting between fretful wakefulness and rickety sleep. They were hard to tell apart. Whenever I was awake, someone else was too, rustling or flipping over or coughing, the kind of cough with intention behind it, placed out there just to puncture the silence. In the early morning, I opened my eyes. From the window, there came a deep blue luminescence. By feel, I knew it was around five or six on this winter morning, dark and joyless, but with a scrap of a promise. More than this, there would be more than this. Someone was sleeping in Ruby's bed. My whole chest seized. But almost instantly I saw, even in the minimal light, that the figure was much too big. It was not Ruby, but my father. He slept on the bare mattress without a single sheet or blanket, wearing his heavy work clothes. His belt buckle was off to one side. I couldn't tell if his eyes were closed and watched to see if he was awake or asleep. He did not so much as twitch. It meant he was awake. Studying him, I drifted. When I woke again, it was eight o'clock, and Ruby's bed in its entirety was gone. I went to the window. The mattress had joined the pile at the end of our short driveway. One long edge rested, it, rested in the remnants of snow. The legs of Ruby's bed frame had left four divots in the bedroom carpet. And when I sat inside those corners, I could pause the emptiness that was cracking open in me. But if I was on the other side of the room, sitting in my own solid bed, then I could plainly see that the room had changed and I could feel it too, not just a shifting or rearrangement, but a gutting. When Natty woke, he sat up and stared at the void. He might have been caught in the head fog of any ordinary morning except he continued to sit there without speaking for a period of time that grew and grew. The longer he sat there, the more unfamiliar he looked to me, both smaller and older than I had ever known him to be. Natty, I said. I placed myself in his direct line of sight. His eyes finally focused on mine. 
We're late for breakfast, I said, feeling that I had taken a great leap. I didn't know whether there was any breakfast. I didn't know what was down there waiting for us. He started to cry. His voice was shredded. I realized he was forming words. She needs her bed, he said. She needs to have her bed. I sensed I should touch him. He was only an arm's length away, but the way he was crying scared me. It felt risky even to glimpse it. I thought of a place we had once seen while picking blueberries. Above Turnigan Arm, along a dirt path that followed the bluffs, where sour blueberries grew low to the ground, there was a spot of earth that had fallen away. You could inch up close and look way down the scoured face of the cliff and see a small, dark, rocky cove, which had surely never been touched by a human being. It was refilled and refilled and refilled by the unknowable ocean. Thanks. <laughs> How's this? Good? Cool. Um, hi, everybody. Um, so I love this book. And um, knowing you and reading this book, I felt like your sensibility, your intelligence, your artistry were sort of uniquely stamped on this book. And, and so I thought we could start um, by having you talk about the beginning of this book, the genesis, how, what was the first seed um, and how did you start to develop that seed? Sure, I mean, I think this is a common question because I've been getting it a lot in my interviews. And I feel like my answer keeps changing. <laughs> um, and I think the reason is, that I can't identify any one thing that like sort of spawned this book. And I think a lot of authors have that, like, you know, this one thing happened to me and then, and then a novel came out of it. It's like very magical, but that is not what happened for me. Um, I think it was more like I sat down and I was like, I've written a lot of short stories. I want to write something longer. And I, I knew that I needed um, sort of to, to tackle my obsessions, you know, in order to sustain this long work. And so, you know, some of my obsessions are Alaska, um, family, and, um, and then there was, you know, there was one news article that did sort of spark a climactic scene later on. So, like, sometimes I talk about that because I feel like that's what people want to hear. But, um, <laughs> so I can tell you, um, I once stumbled upon a news article that was about a family, I think in Japan, and I'm gonna get all the facts wrong about this article because at some point I was like, maybe I should look it up again so I can talk about it. But then I didn't want to look it up again because I think by that point it had become something else in my mind and I knew that probably the facts were completely wrong. So I'm telling you the facts as I remember them. Um, and this family in Japan went hiking in the woods or maybe it was uh, in the mountains. Um, and <laughs> they, they lost their child. Um, he just, he went missing while they were hiking. And they didn't report the fact for like what was an abnormally long amount of time. I think it's like two or three days. They didn't tell anyone. And I was like, well, you know, 
why? The obvious question is why, but I also feel like it's almost an unanswerable question. Like, there isn't one reason that somebody would do this. There must be like something that, what was their family like that would lead to this situation? And so I think, but about like halfway through the manuscript, I started writing toward a scene that was inspired by by that article and, and the questioning that it inspired, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things in that response um, spark questions for me. Um, one is the lost child. So in this case, the, the lost child is, is the child who dies very early on. Um, and I know that wasn't always the case. So in, in what was read, you hear that Ruby dies pretty much almost immediately. <laughs> um, and what's interesting about that as, as a fiction writer is that often you hear that if an important character dies, you know, you want the reader to sort of have a relationship with that character first, you know, so you can miss that character. Um, but you didn't do it that way, or it didn't end up that way. Right. And I think you found some pretty um, brilliant solutions to, to that. So can you just talk about having the, the, <laughs> lot, the, myth, the lost child in the very beginning of the, of the novel? Sure. Um, so thank you for making everything that I did sound intentional. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I like came to this, but it took a long time. So my first draft, I was sort of writing toward the death of Ruby. Mm -hmm. And by the time I got there, I kind of, you know, um, I had written a lot that wasn't terribly interesting to me, although I knew it was sad because Ruby's a four-year-old child and I feel like you can't write that without having it be sad. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to do something different like I didn't want just to make my readers sad you know like you could write any number of facts like that that mm -hmm. would trigger that emotion in someone um but I did notice that once she died in the book things got more interesting for me I don't know if they're more interesting for the reader but mm -hmm. like the, the things that I'm interested in like for example um why does nobody talk about her death mm -hmm. um why why is this family why does each family member need to go onto their own completely separate journey of grief mm -hmm. when they're dealing with the same exact event, um, things like that. So I just kind of chopped off everything that came before. I mean, I, I don't want to make it sound like so dramatic, but you know, I saved, I saved parts that I liked and found a way to work them in later. But yeah, it, um, I cut off a lot, and I felt like it energized the story in a different way mm -hmm. that I found I liked. And and now I feel like, you know, maybe some readers might feel like Ruby, the, the girl who died, is not in the pages enough, um, that they don't really know her at all, so they don't care that she died. Um, but to me, that's not really the point. Like, I don't, it doesn't matter to me whether the reader cares about her or her death. It's more whether they care about the family and sort of the ramifications of her death. So, so yeah, it kind of became sort of a different book. I yeah. Think. Yeah, well, you know, I have to say for, from my experience of the book is that she is in the pages, very much so. Um, and you mentioned the, the silence that emerges around her, her death um, in, the, in the family. And even in what you just read, words like um, missing and emptiness and absence and gone kind of jump out. And so I, w I wondered if you could say a little bit more about um, 
writing around her absence and, and you know, ways that you tried to, to make her felt on the page and make her loss felt in the family? Yeah, I, um, I think that a lot of it actually comes out in the editing phase for me. Um, I'm extremely direct when I write, um, but I also do a ton of editing in, the, in what most people would call the first draft. Mm. So I might have actually written in a lot, of, a lot more of people talking about Ruby. Mm. And then, in fact, I did. Mm -hmm. And then I like to sort of take things out and play with sort of what it looks like without that. You know, what do people do instead of saying the obvious thing? Yeah. Um, and so for me, yeah, her absence grows larger, but I think a lot of it is through sort of, you know, erasing and seeing what happens, just playing with it. Yeah. Sometimes I'll erase it and I'll put it back because I'll, I'll realize it's actually necessary. Yeah. But, but a lot of times I take things out and I would say more often than not, um, it's a good thing for the book. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so y you mentioned that another one of your obsessions or one of your obsessions is Alaska. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm from New York City. So one of the great pleasures for me of reading this book was um, engaging with that landscape that you depict so beautifully. Um, so why Alaska? The family lives 30 miles away from Anchorage, I believe. Yeah. Um, can you talk about what it is that, that draws you to Alaska? Yeah, sure. Um, it's a little bit mysterious. I, like, I love Alaska in a way that I love no other place, um, including places that I lived in much longer and, and um, have a lot, you know, family in and, and more ties to. But I went to Alaska um, 15 years ago <laughs> um, at a point in my life when I was kind of looking for a different world. Like I had started a career path and I think I kind of sensed that it wasn't exactly right for me, but I was just kind of like hurtling forward anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I intentionally was searching for um, an internship in in some like place that was very different from where I was. And I ended up in Anchorage and, um, and I'm conscious of the fact that I was an outsider in Alaska and I, you know, I wasn't there for a super long time. So I don't think I could ever write this sort of book about like insiders in Alaska, mm. you know? <laughs> but um, I do feel like it gave me some perspective um, being, not being from Alaska and that like I was really thrilled by certain things and and really struck by a lot of things and I've never I haven't come up with a good way to talk about Alaska um, in a way that doesn't sound embarrassing like the way that people talk about their semester abroad in Barcelona <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that writing the book was sort of like a way for me to sort of engage with place yeah. on a sort of like a more complex and a deeper level. Um, like, you know, I could write hundreds of pages set in Alaska without having to explain to anyone exactly like what it meant to me. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've written about Alaska in the past. I even published a short story under a different name <laughs> um, <laughs> that was set in the interior, which is much wilder than um, Anchorage. And there were like bears in it, you know, it was like very wild. And I just felt like it wasn't right. Mm -hmm. And I think that was also another impetus for me to try again and get sort of onto the page, the Alaska that I was like, that was really fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, one of the achievements of this book is that I, th I think it's it, it it depicts that landscape so beautifully and so vividly. Um, so you could say that it's in some ways, you know, a, a novel that's engaged with nature, but it's also a book that is about family and it is about um, the house that they live in. So it's like simultaneously both, which mm -hmm. is really interesting. And so can you can you talk about how you were able to to get both or whether it was important for you to try to get both of those things? Yeah, the house was an image that came to me very early on. Um, and I wanted the wilderness to kind of like encroach on the house. Yeah, it does. Um, and, and so I wrote a lot of description about that before I even had any like characters and plot. It was just like boring stuff like you would never ever want to read. <laughs> but um, But I was able to kind of like work it into the book and yeah. I was you know I think for me that's where stories start is in the setting a lot of people I think they have characters they have a, like a plot and that's where like things arise from but for me I need to like I need to write a bunch of like crap about a place before I can really like settle into it yeah so. yeah great um one of the things that um we know about this book um is that the the narrator is is a ten year old boy, um, and you know I said and I said this in my um, endorsement of the book. But one of the things that, that I really love about it is the way that you're able to capture children, um, and not just the narrator who's ten. You get the five year old brother. You get four year old Ruby, and and the way that we get Ruby, um, you get fourteen year old Pepe. Um, you get the 17-year-old neighbor. So I, I kind of want to ask you about that um, because I think that's hard to do well. Like, wh what do you, what is your, like, what are you tapping into when you're sort of capturing child? Like, do you remember your childhood particularly well? <laughs> or do you, like, observe children? Like, how, do you, how, how are you doing this? I have the worst memory <laughs> in the entire world. I remember nothing from my childhood, almost. Um, but I think that, I kind of know what I'm looking for when I look for books that are narrated by children, mm -hmm. and I wanted to add to that. So um, I think a lot of people think that when you tell a story from the point of view of a child, it should be somehow like less than that of an adult, you know? Like they understand less, um, they're able to express themselves less, but I think that's really untrue. Um, I think they see things a little bit differently, and I think they feel things really differently. Like, um, you know, I have a son now, and in, within the span of 10 seconds, he'll laugh, and then he'll cry, and then he'll laugh again. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's an elasticity to their emotions mm -hmm. and to the way that they allow their emotions to kind of wash over them that we've learned either to suppress or maybe just um, over time we don't notice as much anymore. And so for me, the sort of emotional response is very important in sort of depicting childhood, but also like sensory details because mm -hmm. I think that children live in their bodies in a way that we don't notice as much anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so they may not be able to tell you or to explain to you, like for example, the narrator in the book has, um, he stops eating kind of, like not completely, he's not starving to death, but he, so he stops eating for a while after his sister dies. But he doesn't link the two. 
And to him, the way he explains it is that there's like something stuck in his throat. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like that kind of thing where they like understand things um, and in just like a slightly askew, I think, from an adult. And yeah. I think it makes it a really interesting perspective. Um, but what I don't like <laughs> are stories narrated by children who are like versions of adults and they're like so precocious and witty. And <laughs> like we should care what happens to them because they're extra smart, right. you know. It's yeah. like I don't, you know, I don't care if you're smart or not. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like every child is actually like really, you know, interesting and, and like a full, a full person. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I really love what you say about that elasticity because this is a book, you know, that has it pays a lot. There's a lot of stuff about outer space in this book. Yeah. Um, but there's also, you mentioned the body, there's a lot of stuff about inner space, too. Um, and I feel like there's a kind of vastness to, um, and, and mysteriousness to the body that that comes from this child view, this childlike view that you have. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk about that. And I also am wondering, since we're talking about children, you know, so many people describe this book as, as being a book about grief, which it is. Um, and a book that that touches on tragic subject matter, which it does. Um, but to me, and I don't know if it's just because I'm weird, but I thought it was really funny, too. <laughs> I'm um, glad you thought that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if one of you could touch on, on some of those, the humor in the book sure. and also kind of this, um, this kind of inner space. Okay. Um, well, I'm really thankful to hear you describe my book that way. Um, so... You know, I had a decent number of reviews at this point, and there's one that that called my book unrelentingly bleak, um, another one like unremittingly bleak, and another one like relentlessly cheerless. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and there was one. I mean, they're not necessarily like negative reviews; they're right. just kind of like factual statements. Yeah. And there was one I think that was very very positive, but used the word bleak like four times, um, and I was kind of like. You know, you don't really know what you created until people, like, tell you. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, like, that, that's what I made, okay. Um, and it's just funny, like, it was never my intent to write a book with the sole purpose of, like, depressing someone, you know. Right. <laughs> Nor is it, like, what I wanted to yeah. be. So I'm glad that there's some light in it. Um, um, I think that... Yeah, I mean, I thought there were parts that were funny when I was writing in the way that you, like, chuckled to yourself. <laughs> and then you're not sure whether or not anyone else will pick up on it yeah. because, you know, reading is kind of, it's an act on its own and you don't know what anyone's going to bring to it. So I'm hopeful that there are people out there that will that will also find some, some moments of levity in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I forgot the rest of your no, question. No, it's fine. We'll move <laughs> okay. on. Um, I have a couple of other questions, and then maybe we can we can open it up to, to audience questions. Um, you mentioned earlier um, books about children that you like or dislike, and that prompted a, a thought for me. What um, I like to think that you know um, people are writing in relationship to other books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe you're sort of in conversation with another book or you see your book in proximity to other books. Um, were there books that you had in mind when you were writing this one? 
So I wouldn't say it quite that way. Like, it wasn't like I wanted to write a book to talk to another book or to, like, imitate them. Um, but there are books I love that um, I'm inspired by, and I only hope that my book, you know, would slightly approach that in, like, theme or, you know, in mood or whatever. And um, I guess I'll say <laughs> um, Ian Lee, who, um, you know, is, is a lot much better than I do, and she's a fantastic writer, mm-hmm. read a few early chapters of my book, and she was like, who do you read? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I was like, well, I really, I think I told her I really loved Kazuo Shiguro, because I'd recently read um, Pale View of the Hills mm-hmm. and An Artist of the Floating World, which are two of his, I think, like, lesser-known mm-hmm. books, maybe. And she was like, are you trying to do something like that? <laughs> and I was like, huh. kind of. <laughs> <laughs> um, because he has these narrators that, like, they're telling you one story, but actually, if you read it um, with enough kind of, like, openness, they're telling you a different story, right? Yeah. I had been trying to do something like that. I had an adult narrator in that version, and he had flashbacks to his childhood, mm. and it was really yeah. garbled. And um, she was like, don't do that. <laughs> she said something like, she said something about like my spine growing crooked or something, like, <laughs> which I took to mean like basically like, like he does something so hard to do or yeah. so unique that like, you know, like your book is going to start like growing like weird, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, I thought about that a lot. And, I, and she was right. <laughs> so I reordered my book. It's now, like, chronological, and it's now much more limited in span. And I think um, it was helpful. Like, I started to realize actually what I was writing about, which is sometimes very hard to see. Yeah. And I think that often when we do time jumps, it kind of masks things sometimes so mm-hmm. that you it takes longer for you to realize, like, because it's so messy, it takes you longer to realize, like, what's actually happening. Yeah in your book. So that was a failure, I think, of imitating somebody <laughs> is like kind of your question. Yeah. Um, and then I'll just say, you know, I really love Housekeeping by Marilyn mm-hmm. Robinson. It's one book that I loved when I was younger and that I've continued to love, which is not always the case with books for right. me. Um, and there's children in that book yeah. um, that are unknowable, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, like, you read the book and you still don't really feel like you know those children, which I like. Uh, I like leaving space for that. And she's also, you know, she has the, um, she has a wilderness in her book, mm-hmm. also woods. Mm-hmm. And it, um, the boundaries between wilderness and, and the domestic space mm-hmm. completely get blurred in her book. And I wanted to try some of that in my book as well. Yeah. Although, her book is just you know, inimitable. It's so yeah. I hesitate even to bring it up. Right. But, uh, <laughs> since, okay. since, you know, people ask you. Yeah. It's I like. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just used a word that prompted another question for me. So you said <laughs> unknowable. Mm-hmm. One of the first words in the novel is uneventful. Mm-hmm. On the second page, you have undo. Yeah. So I have to ask about your amazing title, <laughs> The Unpassing. How, talk, can you just, just talk about it? Um... I like unwords, <laughs> as you noticed. <laughs> I probably overuse them. Um, but I think what I really like about these words 
is how like you would think it's like a negation of whatever it's you know comes before whatever it precedes but I, I don't think that's right mm -hmm. um like untelling or unspeaking like it's not like you're not telling or not it, those are um, like they're impossible tasks yeah. and so I think what is sort of encompassed in like a word like that is a kind of shadow you know mm -hmm. like like or the desire to undo something but not be able to undo it so that aspect of the word um appealed to me I guess mm -hmm. but also just um you know it's a made-up word I think it's a made-up word <laughs> 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 never actually looked up in the dictionary yeah. but um it um, suggested various things to me, like, you know, the way that the child dies and they all try to undo it in their, in their own ways, um, the way that they've crossed an ocean and come to the United States and feel as though they also can't undo th that journey, um, and, like, various other things. Like, I don't want to, like, tell you what it means, yeah. you know, but, yeah, I like sort of the, um, the openness of the yeah. title, I guess, yeah. although... I had other titles. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you will not share with I us. I would never okay. share. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay. Um, so, again, I have a, there are a million things I could ask you about how you're engaging with the immigration story. You know, there's some interesting stuff about language in here. Um, and maybe we'll get to that. But I want to ask you this and then see if there are questions in the audience. Your book came out almost exactly a week ago. Mm -hmm. um, this is your debut novel. Um, and I kind of just want you to sort of talk about this new and crazy experience, you know, from selling the thing to, to editing it, to marketing it, to, you know, it coming out and reviews starting to come out. What's, what has stood out to you? What's been surprising that you can share? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a blur, um, as I imagine it was for you and for everyone. Um, but surprising, um. I think the marketing, the marketing of the book is um, probably an aspect that most writers are not prepared for, you know. <laughs> and I think um, what's necessary when, when a book is marketed is like kind of like a tagline. Mm -hmm. um, people like people want to be able to say what the book is about in a sentence, which yeah. to a writer is like death, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> like if right. it could be written in a sentence, then like what's the point of my book? Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's been really hard for me because you know any tagline would be hard. So I think I think my tagline is immigrant family in Alaska, mm -hmm. and you know so there's this constant tendency to want to push back on that or to like create nuance. So for example, this is near Anchorage, which is not you know like the wildest part of Alaska, but like a lot of people when they read the book will read into it like yeah. they're in the middle of nowhere, right. there's like snow, and I'm like, it's set in the summer, you know, like yeah, most of right. it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it, it's hard to like keep that stuff at bay, like yeah. what people think it's about or want it to be about yeah. or just, I don't know, like they bring their own assumptions, I suppose. Yeah. The same is true of like immigration. You know, of course it's an immigration story because the family, they're immigrants, but, you know, when I was writing it, I was just writing about a specific family, mm -hmm. um, and so it's hard for me to then be asked to be, to speak on, like, immigration with a capital I, yeah, you know? Yeah, you're the um, expert yeah. on immigration now, yeah. Yeah, so, um, all that has been, I guess not entirely surprising, but really, really hard, mm -hmm. um, so I'm trying to find ways 
to acknowledge that it's necessary, but also to like, you know, sort of dig in a little wherever I can. Um, and then the other, the other phase that was really surprising to me was the editing phase. Mm-hmm. Um, in that when, when you have a manuscript before you sell it, you think like, oh, my editor and I are going to work together for like two years and make this like a masterpiece. And, you know, they don't have time for that. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have literally the best editor, I think, like in the entire world. Yeah. But, um, you know, no editor is going to do that. Right. And I had, I had just had my baby yeah. when I was editing my book. I, didn't, I had like four hours of childcare a day. And during that time, I had to, like, eat and shower and, like, feed him. And it was qu- it quickly became, like, a half an hour to an hour a day to edit my book mm-hmm. within the span of two months. Um, and so, so, you know, reality sets in. And that's hard, too, because you have this idea of, like, your book and its potential. And then, mm-hmm. and then you edit it, and you're like, this is this is as good as I can get it. <laughs> and there's a discomfort with that, like, knowing it'll never be any better than that and that's always going to be your first book you know uh, if you're lucky enough to write a second right, one right. well this is it you yeah. know? like I can't <laughs> I can't like undo this now so um yeah that's been that was surprising to me I always thought editing would be like you know it would bring me to like yeah, a pinnacle yeah so. yeah 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 Great. Um, well, of course I have other questions but we have all these beautiful people in the audience so let's open things up and see what you have to say Um, I guess, you know, it's the sort of thing that I would have read when I was that age. And I think, I guess it, it depends on like, um, if there, if you think there's anything that's inappropriate, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's sad, sad things happen. Um, I think teenagers know that. Um, I think that when, if I'd read this book as a teenager, there's probably things that are unspoken that I might not have read into the book, but I think that's okay too. Um, yeah, I think part of like having a book is just the range of people that you realize are going to come to the book and sort of being open to that and inviting of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, yes, <laughs> I, I love it, but I also, you know, I don't live there right now. Um, I did, I worked there, um, for a few months and it was during the summer and the summer is an interesting time because the, the days are so long, you almost get like kind of two, two days in one. Um, so I would work nine to five and then I would get out of work. And somebody lent me, like, this dying stick shift Subaru that I learned to drive. And I would drive it and just spend another full, like, you know, six hours hiking. Um, And I just felt like there's no other place. Of course, the winters, you know, make up for that. but, But when I was there, I was like this, you know, I felt, like, really alive in a way. And also, like... It was just so expansive um, in a way that I'd never seen before. Um, and that lives kind of in my mind still in that, 
you can almost do whatever you want out in the wilderness and nobody will ever know. <laughs> and there's, <laughs> there's something that is really interesting about that, both comforting and terrifying at the same time, which I'm drawn to, I think. So I did a lot of backpacking out there. Um, I went to Denali three times and you know, each time I backpacked out there, you, you wouldn't see a single person. You know, there aren't trails, it's back country. So you're just kind of like pushing your way through like, you know, brush and um, I got terribly lost. Um, I had some life-threatening experiences. <laughs> so I don't want to like, you know, glorify it as like um, in a way, but I also think that I had a lot of experiences I wouldn't have had otherwise. And so I think that's partly why it stayed with me for so long. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I'd been worried that after having a child, I would realize that anything I'd ever written about, like, children would be really false, you know? Um, maybe I didn't have enough time to think about it, but um, I didn't worry about that so much. And um, I guess, you know, I'm used to writing about things that aren't directly from my life, although I do also sometimes write from my life. And... Um, I think I write from kind of more like emotional truths rather than like factual truths. And so for me, um, the emotional situations retained, you know, kind of like an honesty that, that I don't think I, um, I would need to change. So, I mean, that's, I guess, a relief <laughs> since my inclination is always just to like erase everything. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, can you can you say that again? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I wasn't sure. Um, well, when I started writing it, there were many scenes when he was an adult, and I so I think that the voice kind of came from that from that point in the future. Um, but. I kept that voice even though the mo the story is told when he's 10 and from like a pretty close telling too. Um, and sometimes, um, like occasionally I'll step back, but mostly I like to keep it really close. Um, and But I wanted to keep that sort of far away voice because I think that it sort of gestures at the time span that I wanted to gesture at without necessarily having to like cover it. So most of this book takes place within a year, but I wanted to gesture at the idea that what happens to this family sort of lasts for longer than that, um, for many, many years. And so I think having a voice um, that kind of is like more distant like that um, gave me that ability without pushing me so much into the future, although it does go into the future a little bit. Mm -hmm.
were to try and get to a, a novel, did, mm -hmm. did that ultimately, did that work for you, or did you have to look towards any other types of yeah. I think it worked, um, but I will also say, like, my novel is not, I mean, this is another thing about marketing, you know, it, it looks like it has, like, a really solid plot, but <laughs> <laughs> the book is not about plot, it's about the characters, so I think when you write a book like that, I think following your obsessions will take you pretty far, because you're obsessed with them for a reason, and so you probably have a lot of material to work with. Um, if you were writing more of like a plot-driven book, then I would say that you probably need something else mixed in, like an outline. Or <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know how those people write. I don't, you know, it's like a mystery to me. But imagine they have a plan and they they think they think what they're gonna write about. You know, like in two weeks. Whereas for me, it was kind of you're just like swimming um, and trying, you know, not to drown. Um, can I ask, is, is there a particular character that you, you feel really close to or con confounded by when you were writing or surprised by any, any particular character that you, like that's your person in the book? Yeah, I mean, I feel that way about probably all of the characters, yeah. but um, the father is probably the most mysterious figure to me because um, he he just keeps on failing yeah. at what he does. You know, he keeps trying a lot of stuff and he just keeps failing. Yeah. And I find that to be a very, like, interesting trajectory. Um, but in terms of, like, personality, I think probably the mother. She's she's very loud. Um, she's amazing. She, like, yeah. you know, she fills up whatever scene I put her in. Um, mm -hmm. And she's weird. Yeah. So in that respect, yeah. yeah. The mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's great. Um, any last questions? No? Can we give a round of applause? Yeah. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.